the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. You want to know what the best email marketing service is for your small business? Well, I've got the team for you. Emailtooltester.com is the place to find reviews and tutorials of newsletter services like ActiveCampaign, MailChimp, GetResponse, and many more. Download their free comparison spreadsheet that will help you find the best email marketing service among many providers. Just Google Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. Again, just Google it. Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis and they have a look back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Jan Benedict Steenkamp, or JB for short. He's the Knox Massey Distinguished Professor of Marketing at the University of North Carolina, Keenan Flagler Business School. JB recently co-authored a book called Retail Disruptors, 
Spectacular rise and impact of the hard discounters. The U.S. grocery market is the biggest in the world, and it's under competitive threat from these hard discounters like Aldi, Trader Joe's, and Lidl. Hard discounters are the source of the biggest disruption in grocery retailing in half a century. Whenever they enter a market, grocery retail is profoundly and irrevocably changed, and their sights are now set on the U.S. market. JB and I take on the topics covered in his book, the impacts that we see, or he sees, I should say, to retail in the U.S. market and grocers like Food Lion, Harris Teeter, Kroger, and the like, as well as the impact on branded manufacturers, those like P&G or Unilever. We also take a little aside and we talk about JB's early experience working with P&G in Europe and coming across Paul Pullman, who is now uh, the outgoing CEO of Unilever, and how that impacted him early in his career, as well as take on um, CSR, uh, Corporate Social Responsibility, and the likes of Tesla and his current updated thoughts on Tesla and its stock performance. You don't want to miss this show. I hope you enjoy this talk with JB Steenkamp. Well, JB, welcome to the show. I should say welcome back to the show. Thank you. Yes, it is really a pleasure to be on the show again. Well, I have to say congratulations on your latest book, Retail Disruptors, The Spectacular Rise and Impact of Hard Discounters. What was the, uh, what was the motivation behind writing this book, this new book? Well, the motivation was that Lidl, one of the largest retailers in the world, had decided to enter the United States. And after the great success that Aldi and Lidl had in different European countries, that not only Aldi, which was already in the US, but Lidl now also was entering the US, that to me was really a major shift in what was going on. And I thought about that and I talked with managers about hard discounters and there was actually no book that studied hard discounters, the business model and what to do against it. So the threat on the one hand and the lack of any clear source, how to, what the phenomenon is, how to deal with it, how to counter it, that was the trigger to write the book. I love it. Well, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, as we get into this conversation, but it feels like the U.S. is in the crosshairs. They're coming for all grocers in the U.S., for sure. Yes, you're right. The U.S., they clearly now have the site set on America. Well, why don't you help us, like, just help define what you mean by hard discounter and maybe where they originated? Because it, it seems like a, it's a new type of retailer in the U.S. Yes, Hard discounters are small stores with a limited assortment. To get an idea, the store size is about 10% or so of that of a regular uh, supermarket, like a regular Herstiet or a Kroger or so. And they carry a very limited assortment of about, let's say, 2,500, maximum 3,000 stockkeeping units. And so small in size and assortment, they have everyday low prices. And perhaps the most distinguishing feature is they have a very, very heavy emphasis on private label. Now, we, we should be thinking about 80 to 90% of their assortment are own brands as opposed to national brands. 
I know as I was reading through the book, those stats were just slapping you in the face because in the U.S. today, if I got this right, around 21% is the share of private label across all retail stores. But when you enter the market with a hard discounter and like you said, upwards of 80 to 90% private label, I mean, that's a huge change, huge change. It is a huge change, yes. Yeah. Well, and and then you couple that with what you just said, which is about 10% or a 90% reduction in the number of products on shelf. And the funniest thing, I as I was reading the book, you mentioned that, or you point out that the, the actual impact of that less choice on a consumer actually increases purchase and satisfaction, which is almost counterintuitive at first. It is somewhat counterintuitive. Because we don't we all like to have a lot of choice? And there are definitely situations in which we like that. But so many products, say supermarket products, grocery products, we have overwhelming choice. So when I go to the to the Harris Theater here in uh, Chapel Hill, um, at one point I counted that there were more than 100 different SKUs and different items of pasta. There were about 150 different types of canned tomatoes, different brands, different cuts, different flavors, um, etc. Even, you know, for for kitchen trash bags, so not the big ones, but the small ones, I counted 47. Do we really need 47? So I wrote a post on LinkedIn uh, not so long ago. It took me 10 minutes at Harris Teeter to find vinegar. You know, it wasn't indicated above the ale. It was for whatever reason, together with coffee, which didn't seem very uh, obvious to me. When I finally got there, there were zillions of options, brands I had never heard of, I couldn't care less about. It just is, in, in many situations, if you're time-pressured, if you don't really care so much about the category, actually little choice, just having a small set of really good items is for many people a lot more pleasant. And for other things, you know, where you really want to have a little bit of enjoyment, innovation, say search for some interesting things, yeah, then you go to a uh, to a bigger supermarket. <laughs> I, love it. I love it, and I did see that post on LinkedIn, and uh, it was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, because <I know. laughs> I've been there. I've, I've been there too, where the, my wife asked me to go to the store to pick up something like vinegar, and you're standing in front of this onslaught of choice going i don't want to make the wrong choice but there's so many choices here that's true and actually you don't want to make the wrong choice and the product category doesn't really interest you so much so it isn't particularly um, satisfying and by the way alan if you um you alluded to the fact that that consumers perhaps somewhat counterintuitively may like that when you look at um consumer satisfaction as published by consumer reports based on the survey of tens of thousands of people or by the American Customer Satisfaction Index, the two main hard discounters in America, which are currently Trader Joe's and Aldi, rate extremely high, say they rate in the, in the top few, whereas many of the, of the, let's say, the bigger supermarkets, Nerstieder, Kroger, or uh, let alone Walmart, rate you know, average or very low. So the the fact is, yes, people, the assortment is smaller, but they don't always dislike that. And there is a lot of other things that they like. So actually, they really are offering something that many Americans like. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely love my trips to Trader Joe's. The only thing is, it's they're so crowded. At least the the one in Chapel Hill. I'm sure you go to that one too. It, I, maybe I it's the day, the that day I go. Cool. But if you and um, you know, Ellen, uh, so I go to that Trader Joe's at least once a week. I can quickly get in and out. Now you say it's so crowded, so that would mean you know long lines at the checkout. Actually, they're not because there are many checkouts are open. Whereas when I go to Herestide, there are in the big <laughs> store, there are only two or three open. Then you have a self-checkout, which is right. pain in the neck in many situations. I mean, how the heck do you do that with produce or all kinds of things or some error warning? I mean, I hate it. But <laughs> what you have here is store, much higher price, long checkout right. lines, and the Trader Joe's, yes, it is busy. But it goes very fast. I, I love it, uh, Trader Joe's. I, no. I spend most of my, my money on tra- Trader Joe's. I agree. We do too. We do too. And it, it, it is crowded, but to your point, like all the lines are open and you get out pretty pretty fast. A lot faster checkout process than a traditional retailer, for sure. Well, uh, how would you how would you characterize the threat to traditional retailers, and who who in the retail landscape are going to be the biggest losers in this? entry from hard uh, discounters yeah the, the threat is very significant because not everybody realizes the size of the two big players aldi and lidl they are both german hard discounters that is they ori- originate in germany they have conquered a lot of europe and australia and to have an idea that aldi and lidl are two of the five largest grocery retailers in the world. They are are vastly bigger than Albertsons, than uh, Meijer, than than Whole Foods, or any of those. So we are not talking about kind of minor players that are scraping by their profitability, by the way. Their privately held, but their profitability we know is much higher than that of a Walmart or of a Kroger. So you have something here that these are very formidable competitors and because they are privately held, they don't have to fulfill quarterly earnings expectations. So yes, nobody wants to run up losses for a long time, but they can stick it out for a lot longer than others. So who are most at risk? I would say... The biggest that are at risk are regional supermarket chains, so they don't have the national presence where you should think about a Kroger or Walmart. Those are the two biggest on the national scene. They, they have a regional footprint, and they don't do a really a good job when it comes to delivering a satisfactory performance to consumers. So, for example, in our area, you know, one of them, would be Food Lion. According, this is not my opinion. I mean, I have my own opinion, but this is just according to, let's say, consumers, as they say in Consumer Reports, Food Lion does not have a very good image. Among consumers, satisfaction is not is not particularly high. People believe that the price level is, is kind of high and it is not compensated for by, by great service or other good things. Now, in such a chain, which doesn't have the let's say, the national scope and and size of a Kroger, they are going to be the ones that are going to be hurt the most. Herstieter, I think, also is part of Kroger, uh, so that helps them a little bit. But so these chains 
unless they really improve the game of providing more value to people in terms of service and other things. And actually, at Harris Theater, which I regularly go and never go to Food Line, and because I've been a couple of times and I decided that uh, that is not for me. <laughs> but Harris Theater, the service in this time that I live here now, 12 and a half years, I see I have seen the service only decline. Yes. Yep. <laughs> But that's not the way how you can how you can survive, especially not when in our area Wegmans is also coming in, Publix is coming in from the south. They provide much better service value in in terms of customer experience than some of the traditional chains in our area. And then we have Aldi and Lido and Trader Joe's. So you can figure out who are going to be. Uh, squeeze that's going to be Harris Theater, is going to be Food Lion, Lowe's perhaps, but Lowe's has as a bit of a stronger positioning in the local market. So that helps them a bit more. Mm, I see. It, you know, you write at length and I don't want to give away too much because there's, there's great insight on what these retailers can actually do about their situation and the types of strategies that you, you analyze and, and think about in the book. But it seems like this classic brand challenge, which is those brands that are in the middle kind of the soupy middle, if you will, undifferentiated, uninnovative. Like many classical case studies, those are the ones that are going to lose the most. Would you agree? Yes, and yeah. I agree. And that is the way how it should be because that is uh, what free competition is about. Right, right. Uh, you either have to provide the lowest possible price or you have to provide you know, great service or something else you have to do really well. But if that is not the case, like a food lion, according to consumer reports, and it's my experience mm-hmm. too, well, they should lose out, you know, against Wegmans or against Trader Joe's. And mm-hmm. it's only better for the consumer ultimately. Right, right. Well, where in your mind does Amazon fit in, especially with their acquisition of Whole Foods most recently? Yeah, I, I think um, so. What we see uh, currently happening is that Amazon is, let's say, squeezing the market from above through Whole Foods and through their whole, let's say, home delivery schedule. And uh, the hard discounters are coming from below. So Amazon is, is doing a pretty good job. The jury, though, what is going to happen with Whole Foods, I think is still a bit out. That is, the prices have been reduced a little. I would say a little. I, we, I, come, to, I come often at Whole Foods. I've done a price comparison study between Whole Foods and Trader Joe's. And before Whole Foods was acquired by Amazon, you know, the price difference was about 34, 35% in private label, comparable private label. And after some some months after the acquisition, well, it was something from 34 to 31%. It's a slight improvement of the price difference, but, you know, nobody would say that from 34 to 31% is, wow, you know, I'm really going to get excited about that. <laughs> right. So I believe that some of the other initiatives of Amazon, you know, Amazon Go, um, they may actually be, be good. The thing with Amazon is they're trying to figure out some things. All the information is clear that on home delivery, that kind of all the online process, retailers currently make little money. And people are trying to figure it out. 
Walmart is really aggressive because they do not want to lose the battle against Amazon. So there we, we're going to see quite a bit. And the, that retailer that is able to figure it out to make real money, the online channel, that's going to be one of the major players. And then you will see more bifurcation in the market online for convenience, being at home, etc., and the Trader Joe, Aldi, Lidl for, for blue products for a very low price. Okay. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Well, Amazon's an interesting one to watch for sure. And they're no stranger to beating up on the branded manufacturers as well or the national brands, as you might call them. What do you feel like the impact is on on those players as the retailers have this shaking out of the landscape? It seems like it's a the storm is, is coming at them from all directions, if I was a branded manufacturer. I think you're right. So what we are seeing is the major disruption, the growth of the hard discounters means that the traditional retailers, the mainstream retailers, have to focus more on their own private label because they are more profitable and they need to set the price image vis-a-vis the hard discounters. And chains like Kroger have been very clear about this. They said we, and even Walmart, has said we are going to push more private label because... You know, margins are going down because of the competition and we earn higher margins on private label. So we need to push private label more. So we have the the, hard, the rise of hard discounts, which are nearly only private label. The response of mainstream supermarkets pushing their own private label more. And Amazon rolling out private labels in different categories from, from say, diapers to, to batteries. And they're not there yet. They're really at an early stage, but they are building it up. So the end result is that what we see, and we see it currently already, that the big national brands, the big manufacturer brands are going to, they are under pressure. And it's, it's a pretty tough situation to be in for, for these players. Right, right. Well, yeah, and it's not an enviable position by any stretch of the imagination. I know, you know, many of them, some of them I've worked with, I don't want to name names, you know, they, for the longest time, have refused to be a, to have a dual business, I think is what you call it, a, a side of their business is branded and a side that they serve the private label market. But that is one viable potential strategy, but it's a schizophrenic one, I think you point out in the book. And, uh, but there's not a lot of great options, it seems like. 
Well, there are some. There are some options. Is it easy? No. Is your life easy? Well, I'm pretty sure <laughs> you have your, your challenges. Is my life easy? Well, you know, the moment that it's all easy, you know, probably I should retire. So and I don't think for top-line manufacturers like the Procter & Gamble's or Colgate's or so of this world that private label manufacturing makes a whole lot of sense because companies usually earn much lower margins on private label manufacturing and they don't have the organizational culture complete cutting costs everywhere. So I think it's going to be difficult. The alternative is that you as a manufacturer come up with with real, you know, significant, meaningful innovations that can can move the needle. Now, there are some of those. There are absolutely, but there are there are few. And let me not now quote from, let's say that I'm not uh, just only telling my own thing. A company like Procter and Gamble, and there are few marketeers that are stronger in 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 grocery than Procter and Gamble. You know, Pampers, Tide, and Downey, and everything. Dawn, and they have been criticized by investors and and others of not actually having come up with real major innovations for a long time. Well, the point is, if you do not come up with real innovations in a competitive world, the people that are behind you are starting to catch up. So you need to do new things. And they haven't really, they have happened a little, but they haven't really happened a whole lot. Mm. Very true. Very true. But it is possible to do it because then sometimes people say to me, managers say, well, innovation isn't easy. Well, to one, I, I agree, but that's not an argument. Right. I am on the positive side. I discovered Conagra's new line of healthy choice uh, frozen meals and made with, uh, with only fresh ingredients in disposable and no, not disposable, I mean, decompostable packaging, etc. And low calorie, high on protein, low on added sugar and other kind of nasty things. I and my wife actually often eat those these days mm-hmm. for dinner. And oh. um, they go for a much higher price than the regular one, but they really right. provide value. And they, so they're healthy, they're natural, and... They good taste, you know, because you won't taste. So it is one of those things. And so Conagra is an example of a company coming up with that really new line of truly much better stuff. And they have been able to turn around to the continuous decline in the frozen meals. So it is possible, but there are too few of those. Right, right, right. That's a great example, too. I've seen that on shelf. I'll have to try it. Yeah, you have to try it. I mean, I read about it in the Wall Street Journal. I got interested. I tried it. And since then... (laughs) I mean, we can make a bet. If you don't like them, I will pay the $3.79 that you paid for it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'll take you up on that one. Well, it's important for me, and, and I love to get to know the person behind the topics we cover. And um, and so I'd love to switch gears a little bit and ask you um, this question I like to ask folks lately, which is, is there an experience of your past that you believe defines or makes up who you've become today? That's a great question. I think there is, there are multiple experiences, you know, parents have had a great impact, etc. But for a lot of my work, the experience that made a big difference was that I was doing one-time consulting work for Procter & Gamble in Europe. 
And after I presented things about innovation, etc., I had an, um, just one-on-one with the president of Procter & Gamble Europe, um, Paul Pullman, and he told me, so just he and I, uh, he, he was, he's also a Dutchman, so, you know, we just spoke Dutch with each other. And he told me that innovation was important, but that he was really afraid of one competitor. And he asked me which one it was. I said, you know, is it Nestle? Is it Unilever? Henko? He said, no, it's Aldi. He wow. was really afraid of Aldi. And when A.G. Lefley, the CEO of Procter Gamble, came to Switzerland, where the European headquarters were, Paul Pullman took him to an Aldi store. Now, Paul Pullman told me that, uh, you know, A.G. was a, a little surprised because, you know, that is not exactly what he would really think about. Pullman explained to me, he said, you know, the real problem here is they own the shelves and they sell hardly any of our brands. I said, that is, a, that is an existential threat, he said, not a normal threat. He said, if we cannot win from Unilever or Nestle, we are clearly doing something wrong. But winning against them is a completely different game. Well, Paul Pullman went on to become the CFO of Nestle, and he is currently, he will resign shortly, is the CEO of Unilever. But that conversation around the year 2000, when he said that that got me onto this interest in private labels and in, in hard discounters. Hmm. That's so fascinating. And he's done such a great job at Unilever, really focusing on winning the hearts and minds of consumers, really pushing on corporate social responsibility type efforts. Yes, he has done a a great job. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, what advice advice would you give your younger self, knowing what you know now? Okay. (laughs) I, I I would have one advice. If I were in high school, Mm-hmm. So that would be a much younger self. I would drop my A-levels, which is an English term, I say the highest possible levels in physics, chemistry, and biology. Although I love those topics. so But I would take instead of them that I would do A-levels in French, Spanish, and Mandarin. Because in my life... And I talked with my brother, who's a senior guy at Royal Dutch Shell, and who's a mechanical engineer, pure sang. I mean, he, he loves mechanical engineering. He said, actually, in my career, language, being able to speak with people in the language has been actually much more important. So if I were having those three languages under my belt as well, and I could, uh, I, you know, the, why not? Essentially, you cover about nearly all of the world. Africa, Latin America, China, and the most important parts of Europe. So if I would do something uh, again, I would I would uh, take more languages and, and fewer, say, uh, science uh, topics. Although I love science actually much more than I love <laughs> languages. <laughs> oh, that's, that's interesting. I like that. I like that advice. Well, usually I ask folks, and you've been on before, so episode 40, for those people that are listening, go back and listen to that. We were talking about your your last book on global branding. But usually I'll ask folks, you know, are there brands or causes that you think we should be taking notice of? And um, interestingly enough, you we've already talked about Paul Pullman 
but you mentioned this real emergence of of uh, corporate social yeah. responsibility. Do you still see this is you know a year and a half later roughly? Do you still see CSR as a trend that's growing? And do you feel like Unilever? You know, kind of a second part to that is: Do you feel like Unilever is at any risk with Paul with his pending retirement? I think CSR is uh, will continue to grow, and a lot of it is driven not by companies, I believe, but by say new generations of consumers entering the market and becoming important in the market. Millennials, Generation Z, those people tend to care more about CSR issues than older people. Of course, that's a generalization. There, there is definitely variation in those groups, but that is something that, um, that we will see. A very tricky issue for companies, though, remains the whole issue of CSR is not necessarily taking a stance on social issues you know, that are kind right. of of hot issues in society. That, that's not necessarily CSR. The problem is, in taking a stance on, on social issues, is that those, I mean, a, a number of them tend to be you know, much more divisive than, let's say, somewhat more established social issues like racism or sexism or those kind of things. But if you're talking about, you know, taking a stance on social issues, what Nike has done, with that football player and, you know, Gillette is, is, is now doing, and what the hell does Gillette have to do with, with <laughs> or whatever? I mean, honestly, I personally don't find it very convincing, but there is the issue, the following, that a lot of people may either not like to be lectured by a brand what they should or should not think. The point is, what the hell does their brand know? And what is their business with me? Or they may disagree with the position of the brand. So I believe that for some, CSR is becoming more of an issue of, of, of social advocacy. And that is not something where people are that much aligned around and everybody wants to save the planet. So that's not really a contentious issue. So I, as what I see is that brands are struggling with this issue. You know, how much do they need to do that? Does the market want that? Or how much may it backfire? And I believe that is, that's something that brands, you know, probably will, will have to figure out. Now, talking about Unilever, I've talked to people at Unilever, also the, the boss here in, 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 um, in the US, and the idea is that let's see, CSR is kind of now more broadly embedded in the company so that it is less dependent on one particular person. So that is something, you know, that, that looks good. On the other hand, there is the issue that if Unilever or another company that is heavy on the, on the CSR side does not deliver, say, the, the, the right financial results, then we have to see what, what's going to happen. So Paul Fullman has done a great job in his position. So that was good. But suppose in the next few years, Unilever hits a couple of roadblocks and profitability goes down. Then actually, say the the rubber has to hit the road. Will they continue with CSR? And that's not 
I wouldn't say that's not obvious. And say we'll have to see how, how the company will do that because there is a big difference between intentions and and what will really happen. And given that a recession is likely to happen in the in the foreseeable future, we have to see how that works out. Yeah, no, you you make a great point that it has. I think it was Paul's probably crusade, but you know it has rippled out throughout the organization. I was I was having dinner few months back with a, a VP of a brand that has the Vaseline brand under her portfolio. And they've done amazing stuff with a brand that you don't necessarily think about. You know, we probably all have it in our counters or cupboard somewhere, a jar of Vaseline jelly, but haven't really thought about it in the way in which they're, you know, going to market with the way they um, help refugee populations that, that need just skin, skin ointment is in essence. So I, to your point, you make a great point that it has been more institutionalized at Unilever than many other places. So yeah. I hope it continues and that they can continue to grow the business as well. So, well, uh, one other brand that we talked about last time was Tesla. And um, I did a little digging just to kind of see where we are today. Cause I think at that point in time, they had just, their market cap had just passed Ford Motor Company. Yeah. And so I was curious, you know, what, what's happened since we last talked. And actually, Ford's market cap has declined to around $34 billion from about $50 billion. And Tesla's has maintained consistency. So what do you think about Tesla? I know they've had some faltering, you know, slips here and there. But it seems like the proposition, at least from a stock standpoint, is holding. I think you're right. I, I wrote... Um an earlier post on LinkedIn, and I still stand behind that post. The question is not whether Tesla's stock price will collapse, but when. Tesla's stock price bears no relationship to reality. Um, it is completely idiotic. People buy into a dream, and I know Elon Musk is a charismatic leader. There is no doubt about that, uh, although he made a few trip-ups recently. But the thing is, okay, Alan, it's very simple. Car manufacturing is a capital-intensive, low-margin business. There's no way around that. There's, that, is, that applies to Tesla and it applies to BMW. And so, and Tesla has benefited tremendously, generous tax benefits, which essentially is a massive transfer of money from poorer people to richer people. And that is going to be phased out. So now we are having a situation in which Tesla will have to compete based on the price. Now, the Tesla cars, I mean, some of them are good. Other ones are, are not so good. As per Consumer Reports, it's not my own opinion. And I do not see, there is just no way that I, I see that Tesla has a business model or a competitive advantage that would justify the current price earnings ratio and their current shareholder price. It is a complete, it is like the tulip rage that happened in the Netherlands in the, in the 17th century. There is no conceivable scenario where this share price is justified. It's, I'm not saying that the Tesla will go bankrupt or something like that, but this share price is 
way out of proportion and mass manufacturing, let's not forget that, mass manufacturing, and that is necessary for the share price ever ever to to be reasonable, (laughs) mass manufacturing is very difficult. It's very difficult to do. It's a completely different skill from, you know, developing an app that Apple does. Because that is, the the development of the app is difficult. Mass manufacturing it is essentially, is completely, it's trivial. But that is not developing a Tesla. I'm not saying that may be that easy. But the big problem is to make it in hundreds of thousands and then we are have to start to move towards millions of cars of consistent high quality, no leakage, no pain problems, no nothing. And that is a skill that many manufacturers have struggled for decades to keep to get really under control. And I do not see that Tesla can do that that quickly. So yes, is Tesla out of the woods? No, absolutely not. But People keep on buying this this dream because people believe Tesla is a completely different business model. What is the different business model? <laughs> right. They well, still yeah, they have electric cars. cars. But anybody else right. can also make electric cars. Right, right, right. Well, and and I don't remember the the actual numbers and, and what happened, but when Volvo came out and announced that they were going to transition, I think their entire fleet, to electric cars by some date, some arbitrary yeah. date, there was a big hit to Tesla that day. And yeah, I know more more car companies are coming out. I think there was an announcement yesterday from Toyota, actually, now that I think about it. So and, I haven't looked at Volkswagen, this And Volkswagen and Ford are getting really into the game. Now, Tesla, I do believe, can be as a premium car brand, mm. it could be a very attractive proposition in the market. But the current share price... Right. <laughs> it's not realistic for a, key, a premium car brand. For the current share price, you have to produce millions of cars because, the, let's say, a premium car brand is like a BMW or so. Right. Well, so they need to produce much more. But, you know, people keep on believing it. And, and honestly, it's a, to me, it's a pyramid scheme. <laughs> you hope actually to sell. I mean, actually, I would love to speculate in Tesla, but you know, I invest for the long term, just to step out at the right moment before the house of cards collapses. Right, right. Well, it sounds like there's a, a potential short opportunity right now. So, <laughs> absolutely. If you are, hey, uh, but the point is, there is this, uh, this fellow Elon Tur- uh, Musk. If you had purchased the shares after Elon Musk said, you know, we are going to go private for four hundred twenty dollars, you would have right. bought it afterwards. Uh, then after, uh, after, well, no, actually, I didn't mean that. Uh, and you, you are stuck with the loss. Do you want to? Do you want to depend on such a guy for your money? Well, I'm. <laughs> you shouldn't do it. I know. Tell you, you asked me. I'm definitely not going to do it. No, no, no. I, you know, I, I don't predict political elections, especially in the U.S. anymore. And I'm not going to short no. anybody's stock. <laughs> no, I, if, if you could do that well, you, you could be so rich. And predict, uh, elections are also very difficult to predict. And Tesla is honestly, well, I think Alan, his SpaceX program, that. Might actually, that is really revolutionary and that might yeah. have great potential. Now, it's outside of my area of, of real expertise to, to see that, but to me, that is really mind changing. Tesla, an electric vehicle is, is very interesting, but it is, it is not nearly as disruptive as, as the other initiative that he's doing. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I mean, and I think to your point that, you know, the the hard part of where Tesla is now is figuring out the manufacturing. That is not the expertise of an innovator. A market insight has very little to do that. We, it's hard brass tacks of operations. <laughs> yes. It's, it's, so, it's relatively... Yeah. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say it's boring, but it is not as exciting as coming up with new things. We're both marketers, so we can say it's boring. It's okay. Yeah. My, my brother is a mechanical <laughs> engineer, so he would actually like that a lot more than the, the marketing kind of thing. Yeah. I, I, I do believe it's it's not as exciting, but it is a make or break issue for any car manufacturer. Well, I have one last question for you because I always love having you on. And every time we talk, I learn a lot. And so I was wondering if there's any advice you'd give to other marketing executives that are probably listening to this that have been out of school for a number of years now, anything that they should be doing to kind of further their their education or further their thinking. Well, I could, of course, say that they all needed to take some executive development programs at Keenan Flagler that would make the dean very happy. <laughs> and, yeah, I agree. I agree. It's a great which school. Which is not necessarily bad, but I think what... What they can do is, apart from, you know, you could take some courses, etc. I think there are there is a lot of interesting, up-to-date information being published every day. Like the kind of things that you are doing. LinkedIn posts that people are doing, I do that, other people are doing, etc. So look a little bit at your specific interest. Where people present a lot of the latest insights of their opinions, and you can agree or disagree with it. You can engage in a discussion, you know, like re responding to the kind of things that you are saying, I'm saying, somebody else is saying, and essentially learn by getting updated on, on those things. And don't only listen or connect with the people that would be, you know, the people that think like you, but actually try to connect also with people with whom you may not uh, necessarily agree with. Say, for example, I'm kind of critical about Tesla. That doesn't mean that somebody who loves Tesla, we can still learn from each other. I can learn from uh, from him, you know, hey, this guy kind of things. I haven't thought about the other way around. You learn by being exposed to, to different opinions. And nowadays, as opposed to in the past, you can get a whole lot by by podcasts, by videos, etc., that are on the internet that you can do while you are wasting your time at an airport or those kind of things. And I, I believe that is it is used a lot, but it is still under underused because especially marketing execs that have been out now for a number of years may perhaps think about it, those kind of sources a little less than let's say our current MBA or undergraduate students because they have grown up in that particular environment. No, that's a great, that's great advice. Great advice. Well, JB, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's always uh, wonderful to talk to you, Alan. Hope to see you next time and thank you for having me. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. 
You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now.